shows are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Welcome to the Adventures in Tech podcast. Talking the latest tips and trends in educational technology to innovate and engage your students. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Dan. Welcome to episode 39 of the Adventures in Tech podcast. Hey, Dan, you know what really grinds my gears? Oh, I can start my (laughs) list right now. Don't get me going. Oh, once again, we're excited you're uh, joining us on episode number 39, Dan. 39. Can you believe 39? Yeah, we're catching up to your age. That's true. We still got a while to we'll go for my age. <laughs> I'll say we'll surpass mine. We'll be working on yours. <laughs> Anyways, if you like the content, like us, help us out by providing feedback and a rating on wherever you download your podcast from. We greatly appreciate your support. Lots of things going on. We have a special guest today uh, that we will get to in a little bit. Classroom updates, just still the 3D printing we talked about with that. We're uh, doing that good PBL project with our STEAM specialist that we had mentioned uh, with Central Hudson. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of moving and shaking. Right. I'm ready to move and shake in the podcasting uh, a little bit more. We yep. had some great opportunities come our way, so I'm looking forward to exploring those some more. Yes, yeah, so that'll be great. And then, of course, uh, ISTE is happening in Philadelphia 2023, Discover Your Next. We'll put a link in the show notes where you can learn about that, or you can just Google it, whatever works for you. And then there is another conference that uh, we found actually local to us. It's the New York State Education Information. Information and Technology Conference. It's happening April 19th through April 21st, 2023, and it's at Mohonk Mountain House. So definitely in our backyard, something you can check out as well. We'll put the link to that. So they actually call it the NEIT Conference, right? So I don't know where the NYSAIS comes from. And they say their target audience is school librarians and technologists. I think a lot of people fall under that technologist. The technologist uh, thing. I think anybody who's into it. I am proudly a technologist. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but I think even like classroom teachers who are really embracing the use of technology in their their classrooms, this is something that you could definitely check out. The schedule's not out yet. We just got the dates. Uh, It'll be the Wednesday through the Friday uh, of April at Mohonk Mountain House. So that's something that you can definitely check out. We'll put the link to that. Now, Dan, I know we're not going to go over too much weekly wind-up news. Well, we have a guest. We do have a guest. I just wanted to say, uh, I'm going to post the link to this. AJ Giuliani, who I know we talk about a lot, and you know, we got to get him on the show. That's next. We'll try. But, yeah. Um, he he put a blog post up about whatever it is, you have to be meaningful and relevant. And it's, it's, it's based I, off his book, right? With engaging learners in an age of distraction, which as educators, I know we all can feel that pain, right? We've all been there and experienced that. And it really grinds my gears. But, you know, the best part was, I'm not going to read the whole blog post. We'll just post the link to it. Is It reminds him of the Calvin and Hobbes comic that, you know, I feel my like a favorite lost art. My favorite comic. I have Calvin and Hobbes books like, of I, the comics. These kids don't know these comics anymore because how many of them are getting into the Sunday papers? I don't even know. I don't even get the Sunday paper, I'll be honest. So are there comics still in there? There are. There are. Okay, so I got to get, get my subscription back so basically it says calvin your mom and i looked over your report card and we think you could be doing better but i don't like school why not you like to read and you like to learn i know you do i mean you've read every dinosaur book ever written and you've learned a lot right reading and learning are fun yeah so why don't you like school we don't read about dinosaurs there you go. There you go. I, so I, that that fits my son to a T. Yeah, exactly. It does. <laughs> that's, that's that's Cam right there, not Calvin. So here's the thing: kids still love learning when learning is meaningful and relevant, and that's going to be like our little soapbox moment, uh, you know, for the day. 
you know, uh, for this episode. As far as other weekly wind-up news, you can now import presentations from Google Drive into Quiz Is Lessons. Uh, so it's it's a single click. So as long as you allow the access, you can check it out. We will put the uh, the blog post with all the gifts, right? The gifts. The gifts are in there uh, from Quiz Is that you can check out. I like what Quiz Is is doing. The import, you know, your Google Forms going right in, now your presentations. And they do have a really robust platform for engagement for students for that formative assessment. So. Right. And talking about formative assessment, if you don't have tech, which we talked about this, I don't know, a couple episodes ago. But let's talk Plickers, Plickers. real quick. If you don't know what Plickers is, go to Plickers.com. We're going to put the link in the show notes as well. It's free. It's You're just basically using any mobile device that you have that has a camera. And it's a quick formative assessment tool by students holding up a, a picture, a QR code card. So something to check out if you're interested in that is a quick formative assessment tool. In another manner, we will post the uh, the show link to that. And then, Dan, this I had to put that this Google Workspace update because we always talk about Sheets. Remember how we expand the cells and the rows? And so now we're expanding the power of Google Sheets when localized formatting and with localized formatting and improved CSV imports. So basically, it's going to be a gradual rollout uh, for rapid release and schedule release. It starts on February 7th, and it's available to everyone. But basically, it's going to use, it's going to make your life easier. Oh, it is. I um, Yeah, I like how it's going to, you know, use some new things just to make it um, more functional in the area in which you live and work. Correct. And as we talk about commas and decimals and semicolons as your text separators, based on your region and where you, it's going to know you set the settings, it'll automatically filter it and put it in the correct format for you. So, all right. Let's get to the the main topic for this week. Dan's favorite movie store uh, that we've talked about for a while is Blockbuster Video. There is one in Bend, Oregon. Dan ran 3,500 miles last year, as you know, so he will run to it this year and return, possibly. <laughs> I, I, think I'll get a, I think I'll get some late fees. <laughs> It'll be like Forrest Gump. But let's talk breaking the Blockbuster model. And we talked a little bit about this uh, overall. It's using ed tech and accessibility to see what's next in classrooms. And the author is Nate Ridgway. And he is a teacher in Indianapolis, Indiana, and the author of Breaking the Blockbuster Model. And he's talking about rethinking what teaching is and can be together. And we, Dan, had the great opportunity to have a conversation with Nate and interview him. So that is coming up next. All right, so Dan and I are very fortunate uh, this week to have Nate Ridgway, the author of Breaking the Blockbuster Model, using ed tech and accessibility to see what's next in classrooms with us. Nate, welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, we, we can't thank you enough for being with us today, Nate. Um, so let's get started. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I'm an educator from uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, originally, I started off as a special education teacher um, in a middle school setting. Um, but I also had, uh, in college, majored as a history educator. And so I went on to do that for eight more years. You know, did got my master's in history. Um, in the meantime, I also dabbled quite a bit in ed tech and also in uh, UDL, which is a philosophy called Universal Design for Learning, if your listeners are unfamiliar. Sure, yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, while I was up to all that, um, I was able to write a couple of books um, the first was um, basically uh, kind of a precursor in, in a sense to breaking the blockbuster model, um, which was called Don't Ditch That Tech. 
which looked at how we can use technology to differentiate for students in the classroom. And then this most recent one um, kind of takes a look more, uh, kind of more of an instructional focus um, on things. Um, since then, I've uh, actually transitioned out of the classroom, but I'm still working with educators across the state of Indiana and also the United States writ large. Oh, great. Thanks, Nate. So had um, in teaching, have you always been teaching in the middle school? Uh, so I taught actually in middle school for, let's see, two years, and then I transitioned into high school um, for the rest of my um, history teaching uh, time. Right. Well, I'm just saying I'm a, I'm a history teacher as well. I started out at the high school and I moved to the middle school. And I had to say, oh, I love yeah. those middle school years. People think it's crazy, but uh, I, I embrace it. Um, yeah, it, it, it takes a certain kind of crazy to, you know, to, to enjoy it. So. Absolutely. So I, I know those experiences have framed a lot for me. So I'm sure it has for you. Can you describe your approach to teaching and what, what you feel makes it unique? Yeah. Um, so for me, like my my approach to teaching has always been based upon the idea. I I think from there, there are kind of several philosophical kind of underpinnings of of my approach to to pedagogy. One is just a very deep, um, profound belief in meeting students where they are, and a lot of this is just very. I see it as like a very kind of like purposeful empathy. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, that I'm not going to, you know, hold students accountable, um, you know, when, when that needs to be done. But, um, you know, that, that comes from my background in, in UDL, but then also, you know, Carol and Tomlinson's work in differentiation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, a lot, a lot of time with educators and professors who I worked with, um, you know, on, uh, pedagogies ranging from Paulo Freire to, uh, you know, uh, to Vygotsky to, you know, looking at, you know, really how, how we think about, um, you know, meeting students where they are and where they like, where we want to get them to go. So that's kind of like the first leg I would say of, of how I teach. Um, the second, you know, kind of complementing that belief in, access- in accessibility and, you know, um, you know, in differentiation and support is also, um, meeting, you know, kind of the, all of that kind of marinating that with um, an ed tech focus. And the reason why I became such a big heavy user of educational technology in the classroom was simply because of one efficiency. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, a, it's an amazing time saver. Uh, and uh, anything that I you know believe that I can use to take stuff off of my plate is in my opinion, a good thing. Agreed. Uh, second, um, I think also there are opportunities that ed tech can really help make a much more authentic educational experience than worksheeting kids to death, oh, for example. Yeah, um, and I think then it also like presents opportunities for students to be able to present things and show off their knowledge in ways that they cannot do uh if you kind of restrict yourself simply to a pencil and paper, um, you know, uh, kind of platform. I think um, that all being said, though, I, I do, you know, I, I'm a, also a very big proponent of not just using ed tech because it exists. Right. It's a tool and it has to be used very purposefully. Uh, so, again, trying to take kind of a very practical but then um, kind of deep empathetic look at how we can make education um, a more kind of comprehensive and, um, 
just a solid experience for students overall. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, for those listeners that have read your book or I hopefully will read your book, you right. can totally see that running theme go throughout your entire book for breaking the blockbuster model. And one of the things as I was reading it and even hearing you speak about now is the importance of, of UDL and having mm-hmm. that always in your mind as you're designing instruction really creates a lot of opportunities for students to provide those scaffolds and provide opportunities to meet them where they're at and get them to where they need to be. And, you know, as you mentioned, I think something that we always say is ed tech needs to be purposeful. So when that technology can enhance the experience for those students and provide those opportunities for multiple means of representation, multiple means of engagement, mm-hmm. it, 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 make, it gives you that it takes up that heavy lift for you as a teacher, that ed tech can really change that instructional dynamic in your classroom because it makes it more uh, attainable. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I think, too, like a, a, a big mistake that happens with a lot. I see this a lot with like pre-service teachers. And, and I ran into this when I, you know, was doing my first years of teaching is that like we oftentimes think of like making materials or activities or, you know, whatever it is. Right. Uh, you know, di- differentiation or, um, you know, the structure of your classroom. We tend to think of like looking at those as like almost like an afterthought. Right. In the curriculum development process, it's like, oh, OK, cool. I've created this lesson now. Like, you know, could I, could I create a couple of different outcomes now, um, you know, that my, you know, for example, if I were going to be differentiating based off of, you know, product, right, like what my students are going to be making. Um, oh, let me think about that now. I, I think that's actually uh, completely backwards. I think for me, I, I start with thinking about that from the get-go mm-hmm. um, about, you know, whether it's process product or, um, you know, you know, you, you know, different students' uh, backgrounds that they're bringing. That, that for me is a consideration from the very beginning. Um, and I would encourage, um, you know, as folks become more comfortable with thinking about how to, um, you know, whether it's, you know, differentiation or multicultural education or whatever they're looking at, that it starts to really become the the filter, the kind of the lens that you see your instruction from uh, from its outset. I think that's great, Nate. I really appreciate that. And things that resonate, I think, with all of our listeners and teachers and educators all over the world is the efficiency part of tech and, and the lens mm-hmm. that you see it in and how you provide those opportunities to the students is is really important and you know just going back like you know our first experience in, in getting to hear you speak and and kind of interact was was at a ditch summit uh you know over a year ago and coming out of the pandemic and you know how we talked uh, mm-hmm. a lot at that time how the pan- pandemic provided us as educators with an opportunity to see where education is going which we'll get back to that later with what's come out recently but it did give us that opportunity and from there mm-hmm. What inspired you to write Breaking the Blockbuster Model? Um, so for me, it was a couple of things. Like one, I mean, I, teaching through the pandemic was really hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, and I mean, it, even for me, like as a very technologically savvy educator, uh, you know, it was very difficult. Um, and, and, a, and a lot of it wasn't even around stuff with ed tech. It was like, you know, all the schedule changes and things like right. that, right? So I, you know, uh, with my with my frustration with a lot of the stuff that I was seeing, that that was a definitely a motivating factor. Um, the second thing, though, for me um, was, and and this kind of ties to that frustration, was that at that moment, like then it, it was, I, I think the like like a lot of folks, uh, it was a moment where like it did allow us that that moment to step back and say, okay, so why are we actually doing this? 
you know, right. with whatever given issue was, you know, we, we were looking at at the time. Like, does it actually work if, you know, uh, we, we try this, you know, process in class, right? And, and for me, like a really, really funny example, this is the dress code. Like, was the dress code really important for us? Uh, you know, to be considering in the middle of a pandemic. And I would right. argue, no, like, right. uh, no, I do not care if you, you know, whatever you want to wear, uh, you know, your japriggings are not an issue right now. What I care about you is your worth as an individual. Right. You don't uh, care you know, if they have pants on or not. <laughs> yes. It's like, just please, you know, if you can be here, if not, I hope you're healthy and you're learning. Like right. that's, that's what I care about right now. So, uh, you know, I, I think that was that was part of it. I think, too, though, the just the vast inequities that COVID exposed that were already there what was another um, extremely motivating factor for me. And I, and I tried to write in the book about like what existed just in, in, in alone in my in the Indianapolis area paradigm in terms of access uh, to to Internet and and equitable educations in terms of, you know, to how many teachers were able to get access to good PD um, before they were thrown into emergency remote teaching. So right. kind of all that came together. Um, I think the last motivating factor, and this is why I'm actually going to be a little bit critical of myself here, is actually with my first book that I that I wrote, um, I co-wrote with my mom, who's a, a Dr. Nanette, and also Matt Miller, who's a much better author and much more famous than I am in terms of writing about these topics. Um, I, I was frustrated with, with that book in, in a way because um, – that uh, the our, our first book, Don't Ditch That Tech, really looked at how we could differentiate the classroom with technology. Right. And I felt like, you know, although that book was very successful as to like, you know, some of the alternatives that it looked like and how we could make, you know, certain activities more accessible, it didn't actually address one of the, 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 the core problem, which I thought was looking at instruction itself mm-hmm. and how that be dynamically challenged. Uh, you know, not, not just, you know, okay, you can wrap your instruction in a different, you know, package in it, but it's still the same thing, you know, whether that's, you know, more teacher centric, uh, you know, paradigm or one that's more student driven. Um, I, I wanted to really take some of those notions and push beyond them, uh, in, in breaking the blockbuster model. So the, those kind of, all those kind of form the concoction, uh, behind the, the motivating factor for that book. So. Uh, I appreciate that, Nate. That that is a great wrap up of where that inspiration came from, and uh, really resonates with with all the points that you were hitting home there. And the the biggest thing that I I want to take away for people as well is you're always self reflecting, like you just did at the end. Mm-hmm. As educators, yeah. as people, anybody in you know across the world, self reflection is a key component to see how can we do better or how can we attack things differently, whether it's for ourselves and our own lives or for our students, which we're impacting every day. Yeah. For me, like reflection is, it, I, I would argue it is probably the most important uh, skill that I have developed over my time as an educator. Um, I mean, you can't look at where you want to go if you can't look back at where you've been. Right. Uh, so great. Uh, it's, it's like there are, if ever, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic, there are, it is, it is time to ask some very difficult questions about, you know, what, what, what should come next with, with educational practices. Totally agree um, with that. I always, you know, say to myself is I have to constantly remind myself that I am a reflective practitioner, that I always need mm-hmm. to go back and readjust and reevaluate. Um, and, yeah. and, and thinking about readjusting and reevaluating and, 
have it go for it. So, I mean, we know, all know the, the circumstances as we taught through the pandemic with remote and hybrid learning. But, you know, now um, that things have moved back into the classroom and, you know, things start moving forward. Have you seen any changes since, you know, that has happened since we've gotten back in terms of instruction and technology or anything that's changed since the re- maybe the release of your book? Um, um, yes and no. Um, I think there, I, I think that, um, educators, um, like I'll just give this example for Indiana. Um, cause like I can speak to that really well. Um, so here in Indiana, uh, as, as you guys probably also, uh, had there in New York, uh, we, um, you know, we had, uh, snow days, right. Yeah. Um, and right around the time of the pandemic, they're like, maybe we can do e-learning days instead of snow days. Mm. Right. So like on its surface, they're like, well, Hey, you know, now kids can do stuff from home. However, um, and I can tell you this now having a kindergartner who has attempted e-learning, um, just because you slap, you know, uh, an e-learning label on your snow day doesn't actually mean that you dynamically transformed the way that your students are learning during that experience. Um, and I can attest to what happened to a lot of my kids in uh, students, uh, meaning I, in, you know, coming out of the pandemic is that like when they would then get hit with these e-learning days um, because they're like, you know, schools are like, oh, this is now all possible. Like what they would do is they'd be like, well, um, let's treat it like a normal school day. And so we're going to set the kids in front of the computer for seven hours straight, which is like the equivalent of watching the entire, like, you know, my, my nerd brains, like, you know, Lord of the Rings. And nobody would ever sit there for seven hours, like watching a film series, unless right. they're a total nerd like me. So, um, you know, that that is a, a classic example of like, well, you thought you learned something, but you I don't know if you actually, you know, really actually adapted this and transformed it. Um, I think, though, there's a difference between how some admin have handled um, the opportunities of the pandemic versus what some teachers have gained out of it. I think there have been simply just from the exposure factor, there were teachers who were exposed to more tools that they could utilize right. um, because mm-hmm. of, uh, because of COVID. That being said though, I think uh, the exposure that was given to teachers with that varied widely. And in some cases you had some schools that were very hesitant to adopt some of these tools uh, and maybe appropriately. So, you know, like one or two or three tools were found and that served them really well. And they did, and, and their educators and their students did fine with it. Other speaking to other uh, teachers across the state and across the United States, uh, they were just drowning in the amount of tools and apps that they were given. Um, I saw, I was recently reading an article that talked about just the sheer number of apps that our students and teachers utilize on a given day. And I think the number was something around like 65 Ooh, right wow. now. Yeah, that's, and, a that's a lot. Uh, yeah. And, and it's just like, that's too much. Um, you know, so I, I think, I, I think those have been some of like the, the larger touch points and dynamics that I've observed, you know, since, since the book has come out, um, that I could speak to. That's great. That's, you know, and I would say we, we've witnessed a lot of that too, as well, you know, coming out of the pandemic, a lot of the teachers that we work with, um, it was great because it, 
it, great in the in the fact that the the level of comfortability comfortability and using different technology platforms definitely increased overall and allowed teachers to bring up that base where now they can think about using it for instruction. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of our PD and a lot of our work with teachers move beyond just is this is how you use a tool to really getting into the discussions of instruction and, you know, setting out your goals and what you'd like students to understand and the skills you'd like to do and how t- that technology can help you get there. Um, the one thing that we did notice is shortly after the pandemic, um, a lot of teachers kind of, and, and, and I totally get it with good reason, said I need to be out of the digital space for a while. Um, yeah. And I totally agree with that. And um, we moved through and now we're at a point now where it's coming back around. And the one thing that, you know, I can see in your book that I, that I personally took a lot from your book was that moment where you, you talk about designing your, your instruction for your digital space to use it in mm-hmm. your physical space in the classroom. Right. And yeah. those possibilities had really, you know, it struck a chord with me, but as we move through our PD and we go through conversations with different teachers, bringing it from that point of view has been eye-opening for a lot of people, seeing the opportunities now where you can you can, you know, really plan your your differentiation, your scaffolds, everything you need in your digital space and then bring equity into the classroom as you're using it in your physical space. So that, that's, yeah, that's yeah. really fantastic. W- without spoiling everything and too much. Uh, uh, I'm yeah, sorry about that. No, 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 you're totally fine. Um, I, I will say without spoiling everything too much, um, you know, I, the, the book is basically broken up into three sections, I, I guess, chapters. Uh, it, it's actually a bit more than that, but uh, the, the last model uh, that I, I talk about in the book is um, the, the streaming model. Yep. And in that one, yeah, the, the trend you're referring to there, for those who haven't had the chance to read yet, is called cloning. Um, and for me, like cloning is something that I piloted back before the pandemic. So I had about five years of it under my belt before um, the, the pandemic really hit. And uh, I will say that that single-handedly probably saved my sanity uh, while, while teaching through the pandemic where like, I mean, because at, at one point we were on nine different schedules with students and like, yeah. I didn't know students I was going to have at a given day. And so just like knowing, um, so the idea behind the cloning model, again, for those who haven't read is that like your, your in-person experience is cloned digitally as close as possible uh, to um, you know to the ones that students can access online, and that was an absolute lifesaver for me from a time efficiency standpoint because I didn't have to go and make ten different versions of myself, um, you know, in case a kid was out, uh, you know, right. or they had to provide childcare for their family. Um, and I, I, I will, I will say that I was recently, um, at a, uh, teach better conference in Ohio. And I had a lady who came up to me and said that that approach worked wonders for her, uh, in, in her classroom. And like, and just going there was like, just absolutely made my day, you know, to, to hear that, that, that approach had worked for somebody else too. So that's great. You talk about the efficiency and we're going to get into more of the models, uh, you know, in a minute. I know Dan's got a couple questions, uh, you know, uh, in regards to that. 
Um, yeah. Obviously, you've been a big proponent when we talked about don't ditch that tech and, and ed tech overall. Do you have a specific aha moment, right, when the light bulb goes on, when you realize the power of ed tech and instruction? Oh yeah. All all the time. Uh, for me, it's, uh, like it's, you kind of just like walking around a classroom, you can kind of see it in students' eyes as to like, Oh, like, Whoa, like we're, we can actually like do this right now. Um, I, 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 there's so many different examples of this that I could bring up, but like one is, um, I was having my students, uh, this is a couple months ago. Um, they were mapping, the route that they thought that humans took to get to uh, the Americas uh, for in- indigenous peoples. Mm. And so I had uh, students on Pear Deck uh, drawing on top of a map that I had put on uh, a slide deck. And they were just like able to draw the route that they thought and predict. And then just like simply being able to be like to display students' answers up on the screen within seconds. Uh, and, you know, being able to, to digest some of the, um, you know, misconceptions that they had and talk about, uh, you know, what more recent science has, uh, and, you know, and archaeology has determined that, uh, like you can instantly and much more quickly, um, have effective conversations with students, uh, with, with some of the technologies that are out there right now compared to what I would be able to do in the past. Yeah. And it's great. I mean, to try to keep up, like you said, the 65 tools in any point, it's a lot yeah. to, to keep track of all the tools and you have to ask, you know, it's, it's making sure you're using what works best for you and your students with your outcomes. That's really what it comes down to. And Pear Deck yeah. is a great example right in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. So just to get back to the book again, and I don't want to give away too much because everyone no, should be. You got to sell copies. Got, everyone should read this book, yeah. especially the way it's put together and, and you, you, you explain everything and your graphics and your details and your plot points and your plot twists. I love it. Um, and but, Blockbuster as a whole. <laughs> right. You know, after uh, I read the book, Andrew and I thought we should uh, plan a road trip to Bend, Oregon to yeah. see the last remaining Blockbuster. I know. There's, there's still one there. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you talk about uh, different models of instruction um, mm-hmm. in in the blockbuster model. Can you just briefly discuss the different models that you go through in the book? Yeah. Um, so the I decided early on that I, I kind of wanted to um, turn the book into something that not just a book about accessibility, but I wanted the book itself to be accessible, right? And so mm-hmm. I thought. Uh, something that you know folks could relate to easily and that I felt like with movies and video and film like we, we all are very large content consumers uh, and right. so that was kind of a medium that I thought that we could you know use to kind of discuss some of the paradigms with instruction so um, in terms of how the book breaks down so we first take a look at what I call the movie theater model and the movie theater model is really predicated upon a very traditional um, kind of stance on education um, and for me, the movie theater model really breaks down to a couple of very central ideas. Uh, one, that being that lessons are very centered on uh, lecture, uh, and it's a very kind of teacher-centric notion of the classroom. So the teachers, you know, determine what skills are important, what content is important. And if we think about that and like, kind of like how that translates into a movie theater then, it's pretty similar, right? Movies right. determine what, uh, you know, movie theaters determine what movies are going to be available, no matter how good or bad they are. Uh, you know, that's, um, 
you know, it's kind of like the Oscars, right? It's like, you know, no, you you don't, you know, it's not going to be the community that's going to pick. It's going to be, you know, that certain group of people, right, that's going to deem that this this is the best and that's what you're going to watch. I think the other thing about the movie theater model that's really important to understand is that, and and lectures fall prey to this uh, quite a bit, but not always, uh, is that they are very, very restricted in terms of accessibility. You have to be there at a certain time. Um, there's no pausing or rewinding, uh, you know, it's like, you know, you have to go to the bathroom or you miss something. Um, I can't remember the last time that I was at a movie theater and there were subtitles on. So right. like there's a lot of restrictions there in terms of, um, you know, in terms of linguistics and multi, you know, lingual learners that could be discussed. So for me, the movie theater model has got some serious problems. Um, but it, it's, it, it, it's not like we should toss it all out. It just needs some serious renovation, uh, that the movie theaters do. Uh, I mean, if you, uh, I actually shared in the book, like a picture of the first Nickelodeon in the United States in Pittsburgh, yeah. uh, and it looks very similar to a movie theater nowadays, just without, you know, the, the spine, you know, shaking subwoofers, it's, it's pretty much the exact same. And so uh, for me, I think uh, what I try to do in the book is show about some 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 techniques that we can employ to try to uh, kind of renovate those movie theaters and make them more effective for our students when they need to be used. Because there are times where, you know, uh, we, we do need to do a short mini lesson here or there, and that is the most effective way of delivering content. So... That's awesome. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the movie theater model. I can go. I can go on to the next one if you would like me to, or we can take some time and discuss that one if you'd like. Um, you know, I think we can go on to the next one. I mean, the one thing sure. with the movie theater experience too, and that and that you bring up in the book is there is a place for it and a very valuable place mm-hmm. for right. it in instruction. Um, but you do mention we can do a better job with it. Um, mm-hmm. especially thinking about the other models that come after it. So I, maybe we can just transition into the blockbuster model. Yeah. So the blockbuster model then takes some of the, some of the inspiration then from uh, the movie theater model um, of, you know, that very kind of lecturer centric, um, you know, teacher centric um, kind of skills. And it looks more at the practices then that are surrounding uh, that dynamic. And for me, like, since it is, is the heart of the book, um, the blockbuster model uh, for me is like all those things that like as a student that you would always like to traditionally count on being there. Like right. I always thought as a student growing up in the 90s, like, oh, blockbuster, like that'll be there in 2020. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it'll still be around. Um, and then, you know, of course, you know, uh, you know, things happen. Right. Um, and so like, for me, it's like textbooks, right. Uh, you know, are, are a classic example of something that we find in the blockbuster model. Um, you know, the idea that there always is going to be homework, right. Um, you know, that like, it, it's these very, just like very core notions of if I were to step into most teachers classrooms, I would see some elements of, uh, of, of those kind of uh, bits and pieces of instruction. Um, I think that there are some things that Blockbuster did that were revolutionary for its time. Um, and, and this is something actually that um, I, I try to talk about in the book that, you know, 
that there there were some things that Blockbuster did really well, such as like for example that you know you could now start to think beyond about you know oh I have to always go to a movie theater consume content I can go and I, I can take it home and I can consume it at my own time right whether that's a was it a three day rental or a five day rental right yeah um, or what, whatever odd things that are there um, the the thing is though is that I think that Blockbuster revealed. Um, and, and in itself, uh, you know, the, the actual physical blockbuster, but also the blockbuster classrooms writ large, they revealed some very troublesome um, philosophical underpinnings about instruction, about how we conceive of that. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one, the, the one that I would target immediately is grading. Um, and blockbuster to be honest, uh, and they would freely admit this, at least the one store left with, is that they are not, they, they actually did not care if you turned your movies in on time. And the reason was because they, they cared about profit, right? Um, and for me, grading slash late work is very much the same thing. Um, the, the effect that late work and grading has on students, and this has been very heavily dived into, and I tried to as much as, as possible parse through um, some of the research in the book, is that that has an extremely destructive effect on mm -hmm. students. Um, and the idea of um, David Frango uh, Frangosio wrote about, the, I had him contribute a blurb on this mm -hmm. and, and there, um, amongst others, and just the, the effect that this has on motivation is extremely, extremely uh, potent. And if you think about it, like, I mean, just kind of put it in blockbuster terms, uh, you would, you know, you would get, you know, like, let's say you would rent a DVD and then you would, you know, not think about it for a couple weeks, right? The, the number one thing you're not going to go do is you're not going to go back to the blockbuster to go, because you know what's waiting for you. Right, you know right. it's, a, it's waiting for you, right? And so uh, blockbuster memberships are, uh, you know, late work is the blockbuster memberships that our students never wanted or never asked for. Um, and, and that, for me, that it, it's an extremely problematic practice that, uh, that, that has to be uh, looked at very purposely and very decisively because of the effect that it has on kids and their motivation. Um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I, you're good. You're good. I was just say I, I totally agree with everything that you're saying. And then, you know, I think about like that blockbuster experience. Um, you know, one of the things that you look at in the classroom, it, it, it is revolutionary for a lot of ways, but still it was contained to everything. Like you were only allowed to see what was in the blockbuster store. And what was in yeah. the blockbuster store at that time. I remember looking at the blockbuster yeah. experience and, uh, you know, you'd, and one of the things like I have that nostalgic feeling, it's like you go in and there's a movie you really want to see and the block yeah. and it's not there. Right. It's taken yep. out. And yep. then, and then and that's, you're, you're and that's that. That's how kids operate today. Right? right. And I was that person that would go up to the counter and be like, can you go through the return bin right. and see if that movie's there? Cause I really want yeah. to watch it. And then it mm -hmm. wouldn't be there. And then I'd have to wait. So, you know, you think about oh, that yeah. in the classroom, it's like you have, differentiated materials you have all those things but they're only available when they're available and that yeah. and that could be a turnoff for a lot of students 
Mm-hmm. And kids, like, not only can can that be incredibly demotivating, but also, like, kids are going, like, they're going to find the content, mm-hmm, uh, right. whatever it is. So, I, in my in my mind, uh, you know, since since you know, being an educator, I can help them, you know, parse through, you know, difficult things to think about, especially as like a history teacher. Uh, that was something I had to be, you know, really careful of, um, especially in the current political, you know, environment that like, okay, like, I know my kids are going to find the content. So let me take the time to help them deconstruct it and critically think about it um, and, and make that accessible to them so that they, you know, that I can capture that motivation. Yeah. And that kind of leads into our, our, the final model, right? When we talk about streaming. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you give a, a synopsis of, of the streaming model? I know you touched upon it a little bit, uh, you know, earlier on in the interview, but since we've already now talked in the book about the first two models, uh, Nate, can you just uh, expand upon that? Yeah, so the streaming model is kind of like, uh, for me, it, it, it is closer to where I think uh, things should be going in terms of educational practices, but I don't think it's all the way there yet, and I can give some examples of that as well. Um, so the first idea of the streaming model is that, uh, you know, that, that the idea, and I mentioned earlier, that classrooms can have this clone that can be accessed anywhere, anytime, and this is something that streaming services today are so good at yeah. doing. It's like, oh, do you want to watch, um, you know, all of, uh, I don't know, the white lotus in your hot tub? Sure, go for it. Um, you know, watch it on your phone. And then it's like, oh, now you're on a Peloton. Um, do you want to watch, you know, Succession there? Sure, right. do it. Um, the, the, it's something that streaming platforms are so good at addressing right now is meeting viewers and users where they are and where they honestly want to be. Um, and for me, that was extremely important that I, I that for me uh, over time that I developed that capacity as an educator and and there's lots of ways that I talk about doing that as a book whether it's you know taking the occasional 10 or 15 minutes there to record my instruction and then boom um, you know kids can go back and they can use that anytime they want to right to, to, to help in their learning um, there's you know so, so that's kind of the first component um, the second thing is kind of looking at the content that is in your class uh, itself and from um, the class, the, the content, excuse me, and the skills that are in your classroom itself. And so this is something that I, that I pushed very heavily in my classroom is that I tried to the greatest degree possible to not only have the content, and, and teachers do such a good job of this anyway, but I was just trying to be very intentional about doing it that taking whatever content or skill area that I had and then being able to tie that to things that extended beyond my classroom. So for example, um, I sat down at the beginning of every year and I taught students how their brains actually learn. Mm. Um, and, and the amount of times that I would run into students who had, and I would always serve them at the beginning of the year, I would probably have 75 to 80% of students who had never been taught how to take notes with the brain in mind or how to study with uh, educational psychology in mind. They were always just told, you know, go study. Um, and, you know, taking time to actually break down those underlying hidden practices with kids are really, really important. And then the ability kind of by extension then to link that to other things that they're interested in, um, you know, by, by proxy, also extremely powerful. And there's a really good like example of this that I can probably give um, very quickly. Uh, and that is like on Prime, Amazon Prime has this called X-Ray. It's this little X-Ray feature they have where if you're watching a movie or a film 
and they're like, by the way, did you see that in this scene? And it was like, you know, a goof or something. Right. But then they also have stuff like, they, you know, like, like fun facts, like, oh yeah, by the way, um, you know, did you notice in the scene that these two actors appear here? They also appeared in this film together and you might be interested in that. You should totally go watch it. And then, and that's something that I like tried to imbue in my classroom as much as possible, where instead of thinking about our curriculum as, you know, linear units, that we start to more think about it as student driven content from choices that they can make. Right. And this is something again, that streaming practices do so, so well. It's like, oh, you super enjoyed Yellowstone. Ah, uh, talk of my language. Like <laughs> what, what else is like that that you would totally dig? Um, and, and that's something, again, that, that I think that we need to capture more as educators. Right. Um, yeah, and then the, the last bit of the, of the stream model is that um, again, kind of, kind of thinking about that blockbuster model as well, is that we, we shift away from thinking about our relationships in the classroom as transactional, mm. um, which blockbuster was all about, you know, it's like, oh, like this, this is a classroom of accountability. And, and we more think of our classrooms as places focused on growth and relationships. Um, because ultimately I would, I would argue, and I think most educational the theorists out there would argue is that if you really want to enact change in kids, it doesn't come from policies and transactions. It comes from relationships and reflection and growth. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that is something that I, I think, again, part of the stream model and something that those programs and, and platforms do so well is they are constantly thinking about what they can do better uh, to, to kind of develop, um, develop their apps and viewing experiences for people. Well, you know, you bring up the idea of relationships and growth, and we've been having that conversation a lot lately in in the face of what um, a lot of educators are dealing with now with the, the massive, um, I don't even know how to say it, the, just the, the, the AI that's been generated, especially everything with ChatGPT and how yeah. teachers are going to deal with that. And we're, we're really yeah. talking about relationships and growth. Um, how do you see education evolving with the emergence of AI, specifically things like chat GPT or Dolly or, or anything that you oh, may yeah, have seen? Yeah. Yep. So the first thing is to realize is you, you have to tell your kids it's, it's a tool, like, like any other tool, right? Um, there are times where it's okay to use, and there are times when it's not okay to use. Um, and, and that really is going to depend on very specific circumstances in your instruction, right? Um, however, like, you know, having a conversation about how students use it versus how teachers use it, it is a little bit different and a little bit nuanced. Um, I think one for teachers, um, if you are uh, designing assignments, mm. and, and this for a lot of teachers is like their first concern. It's like, what do my students cheat? Um, really, I, w I would tell uh, any teacher that, that I've worked with, and this is what I've always said to other teachers I've done with work within professional development, is that if your assignment can be done and accomplished through an app like Chat GPT or any like uh, you know whether it was you know in any number of apps that were out mm -hmm. there where you could have other people you know write for you. Um, if your assignment is able to be done by an, by an AI, um, you're probably not designing a great authentic assessment of what your kids actually know. Right, right. And the reason why I say that is writing, sure, you're like, but wait, like those AI can sound like them and they can write like them. 
Yes and no. Um, there, it, it was always so obvious for my kids when I, you know, in those instances that I had where a student had copied something from online. And again, this is, you know, when I, when I was having them, uh, you know, type stuff out of a document, it was always so obvious from them when it when it wasn't their authentic writing because I would know because I knew my kids really really well right um and that I think is also one of the first keys that it comes to when talk with talking with your kids about a tool like this which is like one like chat GPT as hard as you try it's not going to sound exactly like you I know your voice, I know what you know, and relationships are going to be your first key to kids with that in mind, right? The second thing with relationships with AI and, and how that's used is, and I, and I told my kids this when, um, you know, stuff that was as simple as bathroom breaks, which is you're on the trust bicycle until you fall off of it. And uh, which, you know, it's a cheesy, but it worked. Right. And that is, uh, you know, I, I trust you, you know, with a tool like this or going to the bathroom when like you say, yeah, Mr. Ridge, I need to go to the bathroom. I'm like, cool, go. Awesome. I, uh, you know, I trust you until I find out that I can't trust you anymore, sure. you know, with, with a tool like that. Um, and then I kind of, it kind of comes down to, I, I think instead of thinking about chat GPT and AI, if we can kind of move beyond the grading concern, which for a lot of people is a very legitimate one. And I, and I understand that. Um, if you can start thinking about, you know, designing assessments that can't be chat GPT, um, such as, you know, having your kids respond on Flipgrid or, you know, uh, you know, right. Having, you know, them do activities in class that are them talking with each other and something that can't be replicated with AI. If, if you can get beyond that, then we can actually start to think about how we can really purposely use it in class. So like a really classic example that I, that I had students do, um, gosh, this was last March or you know, April. Cause that's when I, that's when I get into my, uh, civil rights unit, um, in, in second semester of us history is I had students write for me what they thought the story of the civil rights movement was and when they thought the civil rights movement started. And so a really like interesting way that I would love to do that if I were to do that activity again uh, this year is to have students use chat, B chat GPT and ask it, what happened in the civil rights movement? They're like, when did it start? And I had kids saying, oh yeah, the civil rights movement, um, you know, started, uh, and I'm sure this is what chat GPT would, you know, spit out. Um, you know, the civil rights movement started in the 1950s and the 1960s, you know, with figures like Martin Luther King, you know, you get these really, you know, like very classic narrative answers, right? Um, and what I did with my kids then in that unit, and what I would probably do this time around, is I would say, okay, we had a person submit this as a response. This is what was generated online. What's the problem with this? And we can actually start to hold those answers up or an AI generated answer up that's been, you know, created by students. And we can start to pick them apart. Mm -hmm. And so we can, um, you know, for example, and I had my students do this, and I said, okay, so like really when did the struggle against, you know, like when did struggles over race begin in the United States? And they were like, oh, okay, well, let me think about that. And I was like, 
wait, did civil rights, wait, what about the Civil War, Mr. Rachel? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's 1861. That's way before 1960 and 1950. They're like, well, I was like, well, when did the first slaves arrive in the United States? And they're like, oh, crud, that was 1619, Mr. Ridgeway. So they start going back and they start revising and, and, and rethinking their answers. And so there's a way, I think, with ChatGPT and other AI that we can hold it up. Because, again, AI is simply a reflection of human intelligence, right? But we know that that human intelligence can be miscon- you know, it can be misconceived and it can fall prey to mistakes. Right and, and to uh, and to misconceptions that have happened, and so for me as a history educator, like looking at what everybody thinks are true or things that you know people consider to be a narrative that's dominant would be a fascinating way to use a tool like that. Um, that that for me is like I, I think there's kind of again different tacks to approach the the topic of AI generally. Like one is yes, think about the grading part of it that that's you know, something very important to you, but also think about how your instruction should maybe change to adapt to, you know, tools like that. Right. Um, right. And then second, you know, think about how you can flip it and use it as something that can empower you as an educator. If that means that you're like, hey, chat GPT, please um, save me 20 minutes and write me a blurb about back to school night that I can use. Absolutely use it. I mean, of course, proofread it. Just don't you know send it out you know, without actually reading it. But you know, yeah, I use the tools that are available there to you. But help students understand them in the context of their creation and their appropriateness of use. That that would be kind of my my spiel on it. That's great. Nate. That's great. And um, you know, I've just I, I always look at this quote that you have at the end of your book where breaking the blockbuster model means not just thinking about what the future holds, but designing what we as teachers want the future to be. So, I mean, when you wrote that, um, you probably didn't have this idea of AI in mind, but it's there. And, you know, what what it goes back to is you talk about redesigning learning experiences and then mm-hmm. embracing that digital space to provide opportunities for more creativity, more collaboration, more authentic, uh, more performance-based assessment. It's, you know, that that's really where we need to look to as educators. Like, all right, if we're going to really reevaluate our instruction, we need to really reevaluate the way we deliver instruction in order to provide those opportunities for authenticity in the classroom. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Nate, Nate, what I wanted to say is I, I love how the book really ended. I know Dan gave that, that one quote, but you know, something that you really that really resonated with me was we're all forced to innovate and make leaps into the unknown. And right now, the AI, the use of AI, ChatGPT, Google's version that's coming out, you know, all of that is that that risk taking. Right. And and you said that the way you closed it was the riskiest thing that we could do, though, is if we want to improve educational equity and accessibility is taking no risk at all. So oh, taking, yeah. Taking yeah. no risk into the AI world is only going to set us back. We have to pivot just like we have with other things that have changed, and we have to get ready to kind of buckle up and get ready for the ride like it's a roller coaster because we don't know where it's going to go. And we're having this conversation in February. Who knows where it's going to be in September? But, we, you know, we do appreciate your time today and, and all of that. Uh, where can listeners find you online and and learn more about you and grab copy of your books, Don't Ditch That Tech, and Breaking the Blockbuster Model? Where can all of our listeners find you, Nate? Yeah, so there's probably two locations that I can um, point uh, people towards. Uh, awesome. The first is the website for the book itself, which is breakingblockbuster.com. Great. Um, easy to find. 
uh, the book is there. You can you can get it on uh, paperback or Kindle on Amazon. Um, I think there's also a link there where people can read the uh, preface for free just by punching in their email so they can get a piece of it. And then uh, the second place is on Twitter. Um, we're not, uh, my, my mom, who I, uh, again, uh, I've collaborated with on a couple books. We actually, it's, it's quite adorable, uh, share a Twitter account, <laughs> with, um, but I promise it is me. Uh, and, uh, we're available there at, uh, teach from Ridge, uh, and, and you can find us there. That's great. Nate, we can't thank you enough for your time and your expertise and sharing all of your knowledge and, and foresight with the book and, and where education's going and, and a quick recap of, of all the models. Uh, anybody, you got to go, re- you got to read the book. It's really eye opening. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your guys' time and uh, the, the chance to speak with you guys about it. Thanks again, Nate. Thank you, Nate. Dan, that was a very insightful interview with Nate. Yes, uh, thanks again to Nate for joining us on this. It was so much fun to to further our conversation about technology and instruction and just good teaching. Yeah, the digital environments, everything. There's there's something that everybody can take away from that interview that is meaningful to your own instruction and pedagogy as you move forward throughout your educational career, whether you're a new teacher or a seasoned teacher, there's something that you can definitely take away. So that is going to wrap up episode 39. Dan, any final thoughts? Nope. Thanks. Just as always, thanks again to all of our listeners and please uh, keep giving us the feedback. That's it. The sticker request, we'll post that link on the show notes as well. Thank you for all your support. Listen on those platforms, leaving those reviews as Dan had mentioned. Questions, comments, suggestions, reach out, hit us up on the socials. Tech hard, work smart, live an adventure. Find Andrew on all socials at a Nicola tech and Dan at WCSD tech DR. 